Welcome to How to Ruin Your Own Reputation, the show where I talk to people who either have unusual jobs or who live lives that some people just don't understand. My guest today is impressive for a lot of reasons. Stephen Benedict is a world-class track and field athlete and Olympic qualifier. He has more medals and awards than I can list and has been featured in or on the covers of over 50 different publications like ESPN Magazine, Men's Health, Men's Fitness, and GQ. But Stephen's story goes much deeper than that. Anyone who's been an athlete, knows an athlete, or raised athletes knows the type of focus and support that goes into being successful. And while Stephen's life is full of accomplishments, he's also had his life impacted by things like abuse, abandonment, drugs, alcohol, untimely deaths, and family deception, all before he turned 28. And going through the foster system has led him to become a huge advocate for the foster care system and he founded the organization Fostering Success. And we will talk about all of that. Hello, Stephen, and welcome to How to Ruin Your Own Reputation. I'm so happy to be here. And you did very well with my reputation on that delivery. So <laughs> I don't I can probably ruin it from there. I was gonna say it's still early. It's still early. We're yeah. just starting. <laughs> so to look at you. And to, to see you on the cover of magazines, people would think you've lived a pretty charmed life. But it's the truth is very different than that because you you started your foundation was rocky really from the beginning. And your experience with foster care started when you were just four months old. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, us? it was very unstable, so to say, at a very young age. And there was a lot of my childhood, I always look at it from a standpoint of a lot of acceleration in a lot of many different areas of having to grow up faster and not really having that much of a span of where you can be a kid. You know, a kid can just be a kid. There was a lot of other things happening. And so, as you said, yeah, I was put into foster care at four months due to unstable situations and non-provision and things like that. And then put back into my mother's hands not too long after that, my brother was born. So we're two and a half years apart. And then we were living in and out of motel rooms at that time, very unstable situations, a lot of neglect and abandonment going on and just lack of provision. And then also the my mother's boyfriend at the time pretty much sought fit to pretty much beat us up whenever it was easy yeah. for him and he wanted to lay out his his anger and his frustrations i was hospitalized at a very young age and it was not not stable so to say if you want to put it in that sense yeah and and how long were you there were you in in and out of motel rooms? Yeah, we were put back into the foster care system. This was after my grandparents found out about things. We lived with them for a very short period of time, but obviously as two elderly parents, you know, it was very hard for them and it was unstable and unsustainable for them to really take care of us, you know, two toddlers at their age. So our next best choice was to go back into the foster care system, which we went back into for about another five, six years, bouncing up and down around the East Coast from foster home to foster home until we landed in a semi-permanent foster home, which was the latter part of our experience in the foster care system. And we were blessed enough to be adopted at the ages of eight and six by two and, amazing individuals. And together, and you were you stayed together the whole time? Yes, together, that which is very rare. And you know, that was another 
very key piece of our story too, is that we were adopted together because there's a lot of separation in those spaces, not only from the original disconnection of family, but then siblings always get placed all over the place. So, Okay. So you were adopted by a couple and that mm-hmm. was it smooth sailing from there? No, no. <laughs> let's just, let's just put that one out on the forefront. There was no smooth sailing at all anywhere. Uh, um, I mean, it, uh, and if anybody tells you their, their life is smooth sailing, I would love to sit down with them and just, just listen because I, that would intrigue me a lot. Um, yeah. but, but yeah, it, we were adopted by two amazing individuals. My mother was a second grade teacher and my father was ex Vietnam, uh, Marine, and then went on to work for Merrill Lynch on the New York stock exchange. And the dynamic in the house was amazing. You know, my father was like the joy of life, which you wouldn't really think of that coming from a very structured and Marine and military background. But my mother was very like the Italian ruled with the iron fist in the house. So we had a very, two dynamics that were very, they were good for us. And they really helped us to become very well-rounded and not to even say that the second chance that they gave us at life and opening up the doors of just accepting us as their own. And this was by the whole family as a whole, like my aunts, my uncles, my cousins. It was, that process was very seamless for us. The transition aspect of entering in a family, even though we didn't really understand what the word family meant because family was very fleeting for us. And parents and trust and love and all those kind of foundational, emotional seeds that were planted for children as they're young from parents and the household were not really started until the latter part of our childhood. And how was integrating into school? Because I'm sure you were in school for a long part of that or, or with other kids. And how did that go? Yeah, the school part of things was... It was interesting. You know, I, I, I was behind coming out of school or going into school. It was, I didn't start school until late. So I had to repeat like first grade and kind of catch up because the early years we weren't really staying in school and we weren't, we didn't really have it, a solid education or a solid foundation in that space. So that was a piece, but having a teacher in the house and then also My mother's sisters were teachers. So we had a lot of teachers in the family. So that definitely helped us. And we had a lot of tutelage in that space. You know, my mother was an English teacher, both here and internationally. And so we were constantly getting corrected on our speech and our vocabulary and our handwriting and all that stuff. So, you know, which we didn't really appreciate, but yeah, on the (laughs) latter part of things, it's very much appreciated. Uh, But the school experience itself, was a little rocky, you know, trying to find our way, trying to find our voices, trying to find who we were and trying to fit in. I mean, we had a couple of, I know I've had a couple of run-ins with kids and questions and kind of outlooks and perceptions of, well, not really knowing what adoption was. A lot of them came from a standpoint of really an ignorant standpoint of just being like, well, you don't have a family right? Like that's their rebuttal. If we got into an argument or like, you know, that, that was their type of approach to it. Typical kids trying to, you know, hit where it were hit where yeah. it hurt or take their pot shots and stuff. But the biggest thing for me was then it was the 
it was a sports platform uh, that was really a lot of space that opened up for us, not to mention that my, my parents opened up the doors and got us into everything from art to music to education to sports, which just really broadened our horizons, which I think is super important for every kid nowadays, especially yeah. in society's, uh, you know, current society of things, which is super important. And so I, our first foundational sport, I did martial arts for 10 years. I did judo for 10 years and that was my, my big sport. I loved it. And I, I really excelled at it. I went to nationals. Unfortunately, I broke my arm and snapped it in half at nationals. So that wasn't too fun. They had to drag me off on the mat with able. It was, you know, but definitely a foundational laid a lot of discipline, due diligence, focus, and, you know, all those things that would be on the latter part of my development and help me succeed in not only in sports, but what I do on the track, but off the track as well. So that was a big piece for me. And then, you know, the, just going, being able to dabble into everything, you know, from soccer to baseball, to football, football was my next biggest thing. And running really wasn't on my radar, to be honest with you. You know, that was kind of a big push. I was like pushed into that by my mom. Uh, my freshman year in high school. And that was just because the track and field coach saw me on the football field and was eager to have me come out for winter sports. And I really wanted to go out for wrestling because it was very, it was very similar in judo. So judo is very mm -hmm. technical and uh, wrestling is a little more kind of brute force. So, so I wanted to do that, but my mother was, you know, in her due diligence of pushing her agenda she <laughs> really wanted us to try something new or wanted me to try something new. So I was like, okay. And I wound up going out my freshman year and winning county championships as a freshman and kind of just built up over time over that. And it's been a big cornerstone for me, just as much as like the foundational aspects of doing martial arts with discipline and everything, the track and field space really added to that it's a soul sport it's really whatever you put back into it you get back it's you against the clock you're running your race i mean there's a lot of life correlations in it that really have played a part into speaking engagements that i've done for ceos and stuff like that relating those pieces from an athlete standpoint to business life or just life in general of people you know trying to figure out their path and understand where they are and being able to be not complacent, but to live in the moment of and focus on what they're doing now. Well, it's funny because it sounds like the first part of your childhood was so completely different than the second part of your childhood. Cause the first mm -hmm. part you're talking about, there was, everything was unpredictable. There was no stability. You were moving from hotel to hotel to foster. I, I remember reading you talking about how all your stuff was in garbage bags and how you had to carry that around with you. So the, the inner message that you're getting is sort of like, you're disposable. So you went from that to being adopted by these amazing people who were very structured and, but also loving, but, and it sounds like it was a big family that you were brought in there. Yeah. It was so a, a big, big Italian difference. family. Yeah. <laughs> That's a I big mean, difference. Yeah. We had a lot of Italian roots, even from our birth parents and, and things like that, which there's a lot of question marks there, but definitely a big family and a lot of family gatherings, which was huge difference for us. 
Massive. Now it's funny too, because when you're talking about the structure in sports, that was another thing that I was thinking. I was wondering if, because at the beginning, like I know I've got two older kids, but when they were younger reading about how, yeah, kids might fight you on bedtimes and boundaries and rules, but there's something that's very comforting about that. There's a sense of, a sense of security that comes from them knowing somebody's in charge and there are, there are boundaries. And I wondered if part of the draw or the love of sports came from the fact that you do have a coach, you have a team, you have a schedule, you have training, and that there's a comfort in having somewhere to go, having something to do, and, and having someone to, to answer to that's also being encouraging. Do you, is that, do you think that's part of it? Yes, I think there was a big part of it because when I was growing up, I had to play that role for my brother. So I had to be the father figure for my brother at a very young age. And mm. one, I did not have the capability or the, you know, the life assets or anything to, or experience or knowledge to even do that. So our, really the main things on the table for us was to have a roof over our head, to have a bed to sleep in and a hot meal to eat. You know, that's the foundational aspects of anything. And right. so that became the cornerstone of us. And if, if we had those, we were taken care of. Now, when we were adopted, the amazing thing was that I was able to kind of take a deep breath and pass the baton, so to say, mm -hmm. and put it in my parents' hands, put it in my coach's hands. And that's when it became a very my listening skills were very heightened, right? And, and that that was a predisposed from predisposed situations and life situations. I was always listening. I was always very aware of my oh. surroundings, who was around me, what they were saying. Everything was super heightened because there was there was the you know self preservation kind of mechanisms mm. and you know the protective mechanisms that were out there. You know, like all those things were super heightened. And then when I got adopted, it was it was more of okay, I can kind of start to try to be a kid now and start to relieve some of those things and let the net go a bit, even though yeah. it was a lot harder. It was still, there was still a lot of trust that had to be built. There was still a lot of those other emotional, social, emotional learning aspects that needed to be learned as I grew But But sports played a very big piece in that because, you know, even now my coaches are, if I don't trust my coach, one, I'm very seasoned as an athlete, so I know what's good and I'm very knowledgeable in the space now. But even now, if I trust my coach, then I hand everything over to him and let him do his job. And all I have to do is go run, listen to cues and adjust where I need to focus on my recovery. But the big brunt of things like the program design and all that stuff is handed over to him. So it was kind of the same thing of being able to alleviate and let go of things. Trust is huge. I mean, I'm, you're, I'm hearing that a lot. And I'm wondering also, because you said, so track is an individual sport. Anytime you're on a sport, though, it's you're on at either for school or for your country. There's a team there. But when it comes to things like martial arts or like track and field, it is you. So is there a part of you, too, that knows, I'm getting it, I am getting into my stuff here, but they, <laughs> they goes into when you kind of had to, like you said, be aware and and live in sort of a sense of, of survival mode kind of at the beginning where when you're running, even though you're part of a team, when you're doing something like track and it's you, you've said it, it's you, it's on you, that there's this thing of, well, I can trust me. That's one thing, you know, it's, it's 
you're going to, as hard as you work, that's what you're going to get out of it. If you, if you don't do the work, you're not, if you, you know, go the extra mile, but it's really on you. Is there something, do you think from your background, from your childhood that will always go back to, you've got you is, do you think you've built like a really strong kind of sense of self or need for that, that inner kind of individual strength? Always, even with the partnerships and things like that, it's, I've, <laughs> I've always been known to really like, hey, go, 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 execute, 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 get it done, get it done, get it done. And if people around me aren't moving as fast as I am, I'm like, okay, you know what? I'm going to do it now because <laughs> you're not doing it. I'm going to do it. It's not getting done fast enough, you know, which can be a positive and can be an asset, but also can be a thorn in the side and can be debilitating too to a partnership because, you know, there's a fine line and, you know, there's an ebb and flow to things, which I've had to find my rhythm in of being like, everybody doesn't process or every doesn't, everybody doesn't execute like I do. And if I'm getting involved with them or a business partnership or anything, I have to just take a step back and also allow them their time and their process to produce in their way, shape, and form. Otherwise, I wouldn't have had the conversation in the first place with them if I didn't, if I wasn't interested in their their value that they're bringing to the table. If that makes sense. So, yes, there, there's still always, hey, you know, that saying is, if you don't do it, nobody else is going to do it like that. But then there's also like, hey, let people process and let people do what they're good at. And this correlates to business life too. I mean, I think people love to to jump ship or, you know, as I would put it on the track is like people love to jump lanes or run somebody else's race. Like we're in lanes on the track and like I have to run my race. And if I start looking to the left or right in my race, then I'm running somebody else's race model and I take myself yeah. out of where my strengths are. So that yeah. correlates to life and business and everything else. Everybody likes to put their two cents in to spaces like, Hey, you weren't hired for this job. So do what you were hired for. So. It's so hard. That's really hard thing to balance though, because there are, there are some people who come from a situation where if you don't get it done, you know, it'll be picked up. You know, if you drop the ball a bit, you know, someone else is good. But if you don't have the luxury of that, then there is, there's that feeling of just like you said, if I don't do it, there's no one there. And it's that realization that no, no, sometimes there is someone there. And that's got to be a tough thing because sometimes your gut will say, no, I don't think they can handle it. And then you got to think, okay, do I feel like they can handle it because I'm so used to being in control or can they really not handle it? And that's, I'm, I'm guessing that was a learning process. The more people you dealt with, the more situations and experiences you had, the more you learned to kind of like, okay, no, I can, <laughs> I can, I'm, I'm a, like you said, I'm around these people for a reason because they yes. know what they're doing. Definitely, definitely. And, and, you know, I've had, I've had, I've had the people that don't, I've had coaches that are not feasible. Right. And I pick up on that very easily, like, especially now, because I've been in the sport for so long and, you know, I'm, unfortunately there's, there's a fine line between I'm, I, which sounds a little egotistical and I don't want it to sound like that, but I am, I consider myself one of the smarter athletes in the sport because I have my hands in everything and I've had to be so versatile in so many different spaces. And so when I go into, or when I'm 
starting out with a coach, you know, I'm interested in hearing their modalities and then their program design. And this goes on with everybody is I'm interested in hearing their initial conversations. And then I open the doors and it's just like, okay, Hey, this is what we're doing. This is what I would like to do this year. This is what I would like to accomplish. And I give them that chance. And if I start seeing patterns of not non-productiveness or not producing on my side or their side and the relationship is not there's no communication there and they're just we're not connecting on spaces those are kind of red flags and I just watch the patterns and then after a while you got to drop the axe somewhere because then it becomes debilitating for you and you're not going to accomplish what you want so no hard feelings but I got to cut the strings before because I know what happens if I keep it on too long and yeah. I end up getting sucked into, and then it's playing cleanup. So I try to do right. damage control before the damage is done. Yeah, that's when the, the self-trust comes in where you go, listen, I'm not being a prima donna. I'm not being a diva. I know what works for me. And this isn't going to work for me. And that's, right. that's knowing yourself. I know, just to go back to what you said earlier about how important it is for kids to be not pushed, but encouraged to try different, different mm -hmm. things. And I know, mm -hmm. like I said, I raised two sons who are in their 20s now but they were in sports from the time they were about three years old and tried different ones. I think it's really important for kids to have, to, doesn't matter what kind of family home you're from, even if you're from a very loving, supportive family, or if you're not, to have something else, somewhere else where you can go to and you can feel like you're part of a team or you can have a goal that's being encouraged by somebody. I think that that's, that's really important. So it's great that you, that you had that. Uh, and so now, so tell me about the foundation that you started. So the foundation fostering success was kind of the seeds were planted about two years ago. And that was when I was coming back from overseas and I really wanted to do something that was pieces of who I am, but not about me. And also kind of the educational experience of what my past has been. And I've been involved in so many other charities from doing keynotes for gala dinners and experience things behind the scenes to being involved in events and just watching and kind of taking the temperature of the market as, you know, as a foundation and nonprofits and what they do and, you know, looking at business models and they all seem to have the same kind of cookie cutter type of model and, so I was really disappointed in the lackluster approach some of these agencies and some of the organizations were taking, and also not to mention the massive amounts of money that was being poured into the system and the lack of moving the needle in the system of resolutions for very big problems that were being had. We approach it from a standpoint as one tangible change is our, is at the forefront for us, no matter how, which way, shape, or form. And we do that by seg segmenting the system down. And what I mean by that is that the foster care system is so vast and such a very big machine kind of moving across from pre-intervention to kids being in, in foster care to social workers to psychology, to aging out youth and all those things, to kinship care and all those things. So it's very vast and a lot of money is continuing to be thrown at problems, which they think are solutions, but it's actually just mm. getting stuck and they're not making any involvement. They're not making any moves or the needle's not being really moved in the system. It just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So 
some of the spaces is like seg segmenting the spaces down. So you have uh, aging out youth, which is something we're passionate about and is going to be a focal point for us for the starter of things. And the reason why Can I you explain that, that just, yeah, yeah, sorry. I was going to say, how old are you when you age out? So aging out, the aging out was 18. Now they have bumped it up in California at least. And I think across most of the states to 21. And that is where the kids are still being able to be provided for under the foster care system, whether it be financially or housing and food and things like that. But once that kind of period ends, they're left out on the street and that's pretty much it. And they kind of like wash their hands of things. And the sad but very you know real statistics behind that is that 40% of these kids within the first four months end up either incarcerated homeless, involved in drugs, sexually trafficked, or dead. So can I ask you, sorry, yeah. can I interrupt? I just want to ask you something. So when you're, when they're in the foster care system, so they're giving them what they, I guess the basics that they need, they're providing food and shelter. And then at 18, depending, or 21, they're saying, okay, you got to go out. Now, while they're in the foster care system, are they being given the tools they need to survive out? Because it sounds like they're not, like, are they given education? Are they given work skills? Are they given anything so that when they're release it's like okay now you're prepared go to your job interview get right. go to the but it sounds like they're just being okay time to go and then it's like what the hell do i do now right yeah and that's that's the biggest insight you know that's very insightful you know and that's one of the things that we have taken notice of and that's one of the you know spaces that we are developing is that while they're in there and they are being taken care of and they have these resources why aren't we re why aren't we utilizing these resources in there and building community around them, building education around them, building a life skills and life skill sets for them to provide so that they do have community when they do have to leave, but they have some sort of direction and they have kind of a safety net underneath them that they can always lean back on and go back to. And the biggest thing there is that by doing that, what happens is that they become successful. And then they come back to the space that helped them and rewater it. And nice. if that happens, we're starting from the top and hopefully dribbling down through the system. And there's less and less kids that make it to that kind of aging out youth space and, or there's more successful kids coming out. And that's kind of like an internal saturation process of things. So, you know, it's sad and but that's one of the spaces like building out social emotional learning programs, building out, you know, business programs for building resumes and skill sets and job searches and having mentors and, you know, forwarding education and things like that. So these are all areas in which we have started to build out certain foundations for and certain spaces for and having a group of people where one at the beginning of the year we'll have a what we call a mastermind of certain things and have some really sharp minds from different spaces and build allies from different spaces not only the foster care system but tech and faith base and yeah. uh, psychology so if you have all these branches working in one for one cause and they're from different spaces and they're providing different skill sets and values we're able to make a bigger dent and then later on down the road is kind of impacting the foster care system of building out 
things like co-living situations for foster homes, where there's several different families living in a co-living space where it yeah. acts as almost like an internal nucleus, where it's like their family. So if there's a foster care system, foster care family, and they have another one and another one living in all one community, they can lean on each other for resources. And it's kind of like a breeding ground, right? So these are all elements of like my athletics. And right. like you, if you're in a camp where you have elite athletes, you know that that camp is going to produce elite athletes because they're all breeding and planting the seeds. Like if you're running with fast guys, you're going to run fast. If you're running with slow guys, you're going to run slow. Like it's kind of it physics. Takes a village kind of too, environmental. Right? Yes. Yeah. Takes That's a village, what it sounds yes. like. Yes, it does. Huh. It takes a so are you saying though that that it really hasn't made sort of leaps and bounds since you were in foster care that there's still so mm. much work because it sounds like you're saying there's still a lot of work to do. Yeah, there's there's a lot of work to do and I think everybody's trying to come out and be this this foster care expert, you know, and there's very lackluster of actually original voices that have been in the experience. It's usually Hey, a psychologist or a professor or somebody in politics. And they're all like, well, we're passionate about foster care and we want to change this so that every kid is taken care of. Okay, that's great. But what How? is your practical knowledge? <laughs> you know, what is your practical knowledge? What's your experience? Like, so we need more people that, you know, this is why one of the things, you know, obviously I'm trying to dive into more and get more in the political side of things, a bill reformation and looking at some of those things, but it's a lot. And, you know, within probably the next two years, that's going to be a big piece and you're trying to start it now, but my career, as far as athletics and running will, I'll probably hang that up after the next Olympic games and then focus and switch gears into this being one of my arms that I work on. But, you know, answering that question, yes, there, there is a lot of lacklustered attempts and people doing keynote speaks and TED talks and all this stuff. Well, that's great. But where's <laughs> where, where are you actually making a move? Like I know what the statistics are. I know what the problems are. I know where they are. How about gathering up some alliances and actually doing something about it and starting to make tangible changes on a yearly basis. I think that's key. I think with anything, I always say something on paper, learning something on paper, speaking about something on paper, that's one thing, but you don't know something unless you've lived it. I don't care how much you've studied something. You don't know it unless you've lived it. They're just things you don't know. And I think that you absolutely bring a perspective that other people can't understand. And I would also think that it helps you relate to the kids that are there. Anytime that you would interact, they're going to trust they're definitely going to trust somebody who knows what they're they're going through than someone who's read about it or heard about it or it's coming. You know, I feel empathetic, but they can't even imagine it. To speak to somebody who knows how they're feeling, that's that's huge, and that's a perspective that you bring that that is worth absolutely listening to. I mean, I certainly listen to it. I am listening to it from you more than more than anybody else. Did I read that your program is also going to match up athletes with foster kids? Yeah, that's a piece of, that's kind of a immersive piece where I started already. And that was kind of the foundation of things. And what the concept there is to actually have, and this is kind of the younger age to like, you know, like, like the early teen space of stuff. But 
basically what the concept there is to have 15 female athletes, 15 male athletes. And what we're doing is pairing them with a foster child or mm. a kid that has been in foster care and really kind of correlating their passion for things, whether it be sports or arts or acting or anything, and pairing them with mm. somebody that I know in the network. And what we do is we set up a day with them and it's very private. It's just them and the other athlete or, you know, celebrity. And we have a photo shoot for them. You know, mm. there's lunch provided, very, you know, intimate setting. We're taking all these pictures, interacting with them, building rapport, building a relationship behind the scenes. Plus they have a relationship and are able to ask me questions and their family is usually there. So I get to hear what their process has been like and, try to give them some tools and assets and skill sets that may that they may not have had for upcoming situations or the next phases of things or open my doors in that space. And then um, all these pictures get compiled and they are going to be put into an oversized coffee table book. And it's really about the essence of the pictures and understanding without mm. any words or, you know, maybe little blurbs here and there of who the athlete was and what the kid's story was just very little, but more about the essence of the pictures and capturing the emotion behind things of just the moments that were captured of the kid's reactions. And then also the athletes and the celebrities actions of understanding that what they do is very impactful for a kid and they're always being watched even though they don't think they're being watched they're being watched and we need to really hone in on our actions our character our values and how we portray them you know out in the public and also in the home space and you know these all things translate to to the person and i guess you know, really translates to the title of your show, how you can ruin your reputation <laughs> in one fleet of men, anything. I mean, it's super easy to do that in any space. I mean, you can show up and be this, you know, diva, you know, prima donna. And one, I would call it out and I'd just be like, this isn't going to work. So yeah, it's a good situation. It's love to see the interaction and every kid is different, you know, and it's funny because when I interact with these kids and I see them, they remind me of myself, right? Growing up and I know what they're thinking and I can see it on their face or some of them are quiet. Some of them are very vocal about their story. Some of them, you know, are still trying to figure out their voice and asking them questions allows them to process or actually sharing some of my story with them allows them to understand and relate and to know that hey, they're not the only kid out there like this because that becomes one of the questions behind them after they're adopted or anything. It's yeah. like, well, nobody's like me. I'm different. or yeah. And, you know, I don't know where to find kind of my people, you know? Yeah. And I think, I think that's a social thing of everybody. I was going to say, I think it takes us forever to find our people. I yeah. Swear. It doesn't matter where you come from. But I think, I think that what's really powerful with that too is that when you talk about having that sit-down time, that quiet time between the, the specialist, the actor, the athlete, and the child, it's, it's that moment where somebody is looking at them saying, you matter. I'm, take, I'm, I'm busy, but I'm taking this time to spend with you because I'm choosing to spend it with you because you matter. And I think that that's probably something that they don't feel a lot of the time, especially if they're being moved around from place to place to place. So I think there's such a gift in just, honestly, in just, I was listening to it and I was just like, well, 
Because just that, I think that's so important for any kid is just to have, especially, you know, an adult or somebody that they respect or somebody who is famous to say to them, no, I'm choosing to be here with you because you're important. And because I believe that you can be anything. I think that there's so, that to me, that's, that's massive. And like you said, I think for the adult coming into it, kids will hold you accountable too. Kids see through a lot of bullshit also. So you you gotta, you gotta be on your game if you're coming in and you're going to be a role model for a kid. You, you, you gotta, you gotta live up to that. So I think, Mm -hmm. I think it's really good for, I'm sure both parties get, get a lot out of it. Yeah, they do. They definitely do. And you know, this goes back to kind of the prerequisite of, you know, one of the things we talk about is exposure, right? And I think that one is not only for these kids, but exposure is so important for society nowadays for the kids being grown up. We're the kids that are being developing now are put in a space of a lot of seclusion and a lot of Mm. solidarity and uh, don't have like, for me, I know that growing up, I've been exposed to everything. And I look at the kids now they're super sheltered. So mm. it makes me worry in some situations is that on one hand, they seem very protected. But on the other is that if they're put out in real life, What's going to happen? Are they going to melt down or are they going to have the life set skills to protect themselves, to provide? Like this is the next generation coming up. And these are some of the things Mm -hmm. that I worry about and see. And that's why I'm always a big advocate of let them try anything and everything at their early age. Hide them. Don't deter them from anything and dabbling in things. You know, be there as the kind of, holding the reins a little bit, but let the reins go and the leash go a bit to let them wander and explore. There's a protective shell that we need to have, but then there's also like, hey, you're not going to be able to protect from everything. You're just going to be able to plant the seeds and try to understand that like, hey, I've done the best that I've can at the home and Mm -hmm. they're going to make their decisions. And, you know, we're going to have to play damage control and clean up at some point, but I'm trusting in the fact that they're going to be able to make good decisions somewhere along the lines. I think that I see it as home should be your safe place to land. That should be where the safety is. You have a safe place to land, but you should be able to, even if you're, as a parent, you white knuckle it sometimes. You're kind of like terrified, but you kind of let them go. Because I say also, you can't, unless you fall, you don't know that you can pick yourself up. So if we Mm. protect our kids too much and we never let them fall, they're never going to learn that they can pick themselves. So when life knocks them down, they're going to be like, what the fuck do I do now? Whereas right. if we've taught them that, no, wait a second, I know what to do. I can just pick myself up. Mm-hmm. That's huge. So uh, let me ask you this. Did you say you're training for the next Olympic? Yeah, it'll be my last one, yeah. Oh my gosh. So you're pretty busy because <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's, that's, that's so, so how do you do, how do you focus on so many things? Because that's, to me, that would be all consuming. But you do that and the organization. How do you do it all? It is. It is very consuming. I'm training like 30 hours a week right now for a 22nd race. So the math does not add up at all, <laughs> but it's fun. I'm excited. I'm excited about this season coming up and I'm, I'm training super, super heavy right now. So it's a lot on the plate, but um, you know, I feel like it's, there's a piece that I haven't yet finished. So mm. I'm trying to get that piece finished so I can walk away and be like, okay, I've, I've done everything and everything that I can. 
and I feel like I have laid it out and I'm laying it out right now. Like I'm like this week, <laughs> this week in total, I feel like a truck hit me like 12 times over. So it is a lot. I love what I do and I'm looking forward to the things on the back end and starting to plant those seeds. I went to school for marketing and graphic design and worked in that space for a very big time. I do a lot of my own partnerships and, you know, I have other people behind the scenes that'll have conversations for me, but I am involved in everything from, you know, brand partnerships to negotiations and stuff, which now it's getting to the point where I'm looking for a manager to, to kind of divvy off that stuff for, because now I need to switch gears and really focus on my training. But again, that's a hard piece for me to hand over because I've been doing it forever too. Oh, well, so. I'm listening. I'm listening to you. And you're like, okay, so you're talking about all the training and then you're like, and then right away, I'm going to go. And I'm like, can you, can you rest yeah. a little? Can you, can you take yeah, a nap when you're done one? And then <laughs> go into the other, like just breathe a second, Steven. Right. Yeah. <laughs> this has been great. I really appreciate you sharing your story and, and everything with me. Tell people how they can find you. My new website is just about to be launched. It's super interactive. There's schedules on there of things and events that I'm going to be involved in. And then, you know, some behind the scenes stuff and then some other things that are being developed within the upcoming months. But I'm really excited about that. You can get everything and everything there is at www.steviebe.com. It's S-T-E-V-I-E-Y-B.com. And yeah, that's pretty much, I mean, all my socials on there too, but Instagram is kind of my other big platform, but, but uh, overall that's, you know, kind of, you'll get the big full picture there. So I think, and we'll have that all in the show notes, mm -hmm. but I think a really big part of your message is where you start doesn't have to be where you end. Yeah, right? definitely. without a doubt. I think our stories are super important for us as a platform to translate our message and to also relate emotionally to everybody because I believe that our the emotional aspects to each and every one of us is a universal language in which we relate to whether it be loss abandonment love you know yeah. abuse yeah. any of those things and no one's story is more important than anybody else's it's just in the way we portray it that is a benefit to everybody and you know our predisposed situations you know, are not, are not our end all means. They are seeds and plants of which we learn from and to grow from. And we have a choice whether we can live a victim mentality or we can live a, a catalyst mentality of this is what happened to me and I'm going to use it to impact and better somebody else's life. Perfect. Perfect way to end it. That's, that's awesome. Thank you, Stephen. I really appreciate this conversation. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And thank everybody for listening. And I will see you next week and how to ruin your own reputation.